Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 90 on Libya. The capital of this country is Tripoli, and the name Libya is derived from the Egyptian term Libu, which refers to one of the tribes of the Berber people, which were living west of the Nile in modern Libya. Nine-tenths of Libya is engulfed in desert or semi-desert today. This wasn't always the case, as there was very lush greenery for a long time that was pushed away by erosion. We'll get into more on that later. And Libya resides within the Maghreb region, which is in North Africa and feeds into the Middle East. It includes countries like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and then other African ones as well. Maghreb actually means the West in Arabic. Libya currently has the largest proven reserve of oil in all of Africa, and it is the only country in the world to adorn a designless flag, which it had for a time, as it was just a green flag that represented Libya. More on that later as well. So with this country, I really, really don't want to dilly-dally, and I mean that seriously for once. I normally say that than dilly-dally, but <laughs> in this case, I mean it because the country's history is so deep, it goes so far and it definitely connects heavily to where they are today and we're going to get right into it so i definitely want to get into acknowledging misconceptions and a bunch of those things so i'm going to get right into it so thank you guys for being here one more time my name is reese karlinski this is young history and this is libya let's do this thing Our origins begin a long time ago, where we first start acknowledging cave paintings that were the first things that showed evidence of life within Libya, or at least the land we call Libya today. It can be inferred from these cave paintings that in the ancient times of Libya, the land was not much of a desert as it was today because these cave paintings depicted a lot of lush greenery and other things of that sort. Over time, the Sahara was able to expand and the erosion of this greenery ended up causing it to disappear because of the increasing climate change in the ancient world. The Amazir, meaning free people, became known as the Berbers and they were the first major people group to form into this land. One of the groups under this Berber tree was the Mashwesh tribe, which conquered Egypt between 993 and 986 BC. They were led by a man named Osokron the Elder. Libyan patriarchs ruled Egypt all the way until the 700s BC. Eventually, the Greeks would come in and influence the land. The Greeks would establish five cities in the northern part of Africa, in modern-day Libya, the most prominent of them being Serene. The city became famous for trading an ancient medical plant called Silphium, which is no longer present in the modern world because of its use in the ancient world. Persian rule was started under Cambyses II, who took over in the 500s BC. The Persian rule lasted until Alexander the Great and his Greeks pushed Persian influence out of the land. And this was subsequently followed by the Ptolemaic Kingdom that ruled until Rome arrived. But a power would move in from the west called the Phoenicians. They founded many colonies in North Africa, and most important was Carthage, which is in modern Tunisia. Phoenicians fell in the east, which is where they're originally from in Lebanon. But their descendants lived on through the Carthaginian Empire, which was coming out of Carthage in Tunisia. They founded the city of Tripoli, which is now the capital of Libya. The Punic Wars were fought between Rome and the Carthaginians, and they were fought between 264 and 146 BC. 
After Carthage was destroyed, North African tribes formed into the Numidian kingdom. They were dubbed Numidians by the Romans, and the ones west of this kingdom were called Maori, or Moor, which meant poor people. These people all fought against the Romans, but eventually they were conquered by them, not long after Rome transitioned into being the empire we know it as. Rome took over this region sometime in the 100s BC. Roman rule led to an age of prosperity. Roman-style plumbing, aqueducts, and other architectural structures became very present in Libya. The most famous of these creations was the Leptis Magna. This is a city that still stands today, with some of its most ancient properties still being reserved. It was the birthplace of Roman Empire Septimus Servius, and has an amphitheater as well as many other famous things that the Romans put into this town. Provinces were formed in the north, one of them being the province of Africa, which is one of the first times this term is used, and the province of Egypt. They were the ones that made Rome the most profit outside of the ones in the Western European world. The province of Africa was actually created by Emperor Augustus and encapsulated modern-day Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. Once Western Rome fell, control started to rapidly shift between many different regional powers. At first, the people that took over modern Libya were the Germanic Vandals, and then power actually shifted back to a Rome of sorts, but this time it was the Eastern Roman Empire slash Byzantium. The land was reunited under Emperor Justinian I, and he, and he established the Exarchate of Africa, which was a province of sorts that was ruled by a regional leader who were Shates that despite ruling over their region, still bent the knee to the Byzantine Empire. The capital of this exarchate was in Carthage. Libya, along with other Byzantine territories in North Africa, faced a new Africa from the emerging Arab Muslim armies. In 642 AD, Arab Muslim forces led by Amir Abin al-As conquered Egypt, and shortly after, they expanded their conquest westward into Libya. Sassanid Persians defeated Eastern Rome and Egypt, and then the Rashidun Caliphate took over most of North Africa, because of Byzantium's weakened state. Byzantine rule ended in 642 CE. Rashidun rule would follow and would be very different. The Arab Muslim conquest of Libya brought about significant changes in the region. Islamic governance and Arabization gradually replaced Byzantine rule and culture. Many indigenous Berber tribes and local populations embraced Islam and assimilated into the expanding Arab Muslim community. The spread of Islam in Libya was accompanied by the establishment of new political entities. The Arab Muslims founded the region of Tripolitania in 647 AD, which became a center of Islamic administration and culture. Other cities, such as Benghazi and Serene, also emerged as important urban centers during this period. After this, the Umayyads took over to replace the Rashidun Caliphate. The Umayyad Caliphate occurred following the initial Arab conquest. Libya joined into this Umayyad Caliphate in the late 600 CE, and caliphs ruled from the distant center of power in Damascus of modern-day Syria. The Umayyad governors appointed local emirs, which are kind of like governors, to administer Libya on their behalf. These emirs held considerable autonomy and ruled as a feudal yord of sorts. During this period, the Berber tribes gradually assimilated into the broader Arab Islamic culture. The coastal cities, such as Tripoli and Sabartha, flourished as trade centers, and began the culture of be Libya being a really huge trade entity. These cities benefited from their strategic location in the heart of Mediterranean commerce. Inland regions became importantly known as hubs for trans-Saharan trade, linking North Africa with West Africa. The Umayyads faced internal issues and ended up falling out of power in 750 CE. This was because of the Abbasid Revolution, which broke out because the Umayyads mistreated anyone who wasn't of Arabic descent. 
The Abbasid Caliphate, founded in 750 CE and centered in Baghdad, replaced the Umayyads as the ruling power of the Islamic world. The Abbasid Caliphate would last until 1258. During this time, the Berber tribes, particularly those in the western regions of Tripolitania, mounted several rebellions against the Arab rulers. The Berber Revolt, known as the Great Berber Revolt from 739 to 743 CE, was led by a Berber named Maisara al-Matagri. He challenged the Arab dominance in North Africa, including Libya. Although the revolt ultimately failed, it demonstrated the Berbers' resistance against the Arab rulers. Amid the ongoing power struggles within the Islamic world, local governments in Libya, often of Berber descent, gained more autonomy and established semi-independent states. These included the Rustamid dynasty in Tripolitania and the Aglabids in Cyrenaica. Cyrenaica is the eastern region of modern Libya. Forgive my mispronunciation if I am mispronouncing that city. Rolling forward, the caliphate would begin to break into smaller dynasties within the region, especially in North Africa. One of the prominent ones was the Aglabids in modern Libya. The Aglabid dynasty lasted from 800 to 909 CE. The Aglabids, originally of Turkish descent, established their rule over parts of Cyrenaica, including Benghazi and Barca. The Aglabids were initially loyal to the Abbasid Caliphate, but they gradually gained autonomy and ruled their region. They promoted trade, particularly in agricultural products, and developed coastal cities like Benghazi into major commercial trade centers. The Aglubid dynasty faced intermittent conflicts with neighboring states, including the Fatimids, in Egypt. They managed to maintain their rule over Cyrenaica. Internally, however, they revitalized the ancient Roman aqueducts and sewer system, which directly led to a more prosperous harvest and led to more people being fed as well as more grain being traded. The Fatimids started to pop up at the beginning of the 800s. The Aglubid dynasty continued to rule over parts of Cyrenaica, However, their authority was challenged by the emerging power of the Fatimid Caliphate. They originated in modern-day Tunisia and claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. The Fatimids sought to expand their power over North Africa, including Libya. In 909 CE, they successfully overthrew the Aglubids and established their rule in Cyrenaica, including it into the Fatimid Caliphate. They were also Shia Muslim compared to the former Sunni Caliphates. The Fatimids began waging war against the Abbasids across North Africa, and they ended up pushing them all the way out of Egypt. It was during their rule here that they established the Fatimid Caliphate in the city of Cairo. The Fatimids dealt with many invasions from other kingdoms and caliphates during their time in power. The Zirids popped up in the late 10th century, and the Zirid dynasty began. It was a vassal dynasty of the Fatimids and gained control over parts of Libya, including Tripolitania and parts of Cyrenaica. The Zirids ruled semi-autonomously, but maintained their allegiance to the Fatimids, serving as their governors. The Zirids faced challenges from the Banu Halali, which were an Arab tribal confederation that migrated from Arabia and distributed settled societies across North Africa, including Libya. The Banu Halal's arrival resulted in social and democratic changes. Challenges would pop up from here until 1045, when Norman conquest began. In 1045, the Normans, a Western European Christian army led by Robert Guscard, invaded North Africa, including Libya, as part of their expansion into the Mediterranean to cleanse the land, quote-unquote. The Normans captured Tripoli in 1045 and expanded their control over other coastal cities, establishing the county of Tripoli. However, their control was limited to the coastal regions, and inland territories remained under the control of Arabs and Berbers. The Normans' influence introduced European elements to the region, particularly in urban centers. They brought with them Latin Christianity, which coexisted for a time with the Islamic prominence in the region, as well as the indigenous religious population. 
The Almohad Caliphate sprouted up in the 12th century. It was a Berber Muslim dynasty, which rose to power in North Africa, including Libya. And the Almohads replaced the Normans as the dominant power in Tripolitania and other coastal regions. The Almohads pursued a reformist and puritanical form of Sunni Islam, promoting their religious and ideological agenda throughout their territories. There were still many issues in the region, which led to the Hafsids group forming. The Hafsids were a Berber Muslim dynasty that emerged as the ruling power in Tunisia and gradually expanded their influence into eastern Libya. The Marins were a Berber Muslim dynasty based in Morocco, and they challenged the Hafsid authority and sought to assert control over all of Libya. The coastal regions of Libya witnessed intermediate conflicts between the Hafsids and the Marinids, which led to a shift in territorial control. It was also during this time that the Italian interest in the region began to grow as Genoa and Venice began starting city-states along the northern coast of Africa to facilitate trade and compete with each other. In 1551, the Ottomans launched a military campaign led by Turgatlis and captured the city of Tripoli from the Knights of St. John, who were a Christian military order. The conquest of Tripoli marked the beginning of Ottoman rule in Libya and the establishment of the Tripolitania Ayelet, an administrative division within the Ottoman Empire. After the conquest of Tripoli, the Ottomans faced resistance from local tribes and regional powers. They gradually extended their control over different parts of Libya. Then, the Ottomans began to rely on local tribal leaders, known as the sheikhs, to govern and collect taxes on their behalf. This allowed them to maintain a degree of local administration while asserting Ottoman authority. Ottoman rule saw most of northern Africa form into the tributary states that paid the empire very well for their autonomy. The Ottoman administration introduced reforms in Libya, establishing a hierarchical system of governance. The region was divided into sanjenks, or districts, which were each led by a bey, who were pretty much governors. They reported to the Ottoman authorities. Ottoman law, including Islamic law, was implemented and the Turkish language was used in official matters. Ottoman rule had significant impact on Libyan society, particularly in the urban areas. Turkish influence was visible in the architecture, language, and administrative practices. The Ottoman administration aimed to foster economic growth, encourage trade, and architectural expansion. Coastal cities such as Tripoli and Benghazi served as important centers of commerce and trade. The Barbary coast started to give way to piracy in the Mediterranean during Ottoman rule. They also flew the Ottoman flag, which further created tensions between Europe and the Ottomans. Libyan coastal cities, especially Tripoli, gained notoriety for activities relating to the Barbary pirates. And because the Barbary pirates flew under the Ottoman flag, they very constantly attacked European trade ships or European warships, which once again made the relations between the nations even worse. The Karamanli dynasty lasted from 1711 to 1832. It gained wide autonomy within the Ottoman Empire, and the dynasty was a semi-independent part of the Ottoman Empire within the Libyan region. The Karamanli dynasty expanded its influence by forging alliances with local tribal leaders, and it consolidated its power base, and from there started to promote trade and economic development so that even though it was an autonomous region, it could have a lot of strength and influence. Internal conflicts and rivalries within the Kalamarni family weakened their rule over Tripolitania. In 1835, Ali Il-Ibn Yusuf, the last Karamanli ruler, was overthrown by rebellious fractions within Tripoli. This marked the end of the Karamanli dynasty in the region. After Ali was deposed, Ottoman direct rule was reinstated over Tripolitania. Not long after this, the first Barbary War began in 1805. It broke out because European powers started to actually pursue the end of North African piracy. In 1801, the United States Navy saw its newly formed Mediterranean squadron under the command of Commodore Richard Dale 
be dispatched to the Mediterranean to protect any American interests and counter the Barbary threat. American naval forces engaged in a series of naval battles and blockades against the Barbary states, including Tripoli. This was done to suppress their pirate activities, but wasn't always successful. In 1805, after several years of naval engagements and land operations, the United States forces, led by Commander Edward Preble, won the Battle of Dharma, which is a city near Tripoli. The battle acted as a decisive end to the Barbary War. The United States, along with its European allies, successfully pressured Tripoli into signing the Treaty of Tripoli in 1805, which secured the release of American prisoners within the nation and ended the First Barbary War. In the time after the First Berber War, the Ottomans began to move directly into ruling over Libya once again, and they took away a lot of autonomy that had been earned over the past hundred years. Many Ottoman Turkish influences would become very present in Libya as Turkish-style markets, places, and other cultural centers began to pop up commonly. It wasn't long after this that the Italian invasion occurred. Italian occupation began with the Italo-Turkish War from 1911 to 1912, in which Italy sought to assert control over the Ottoman-controlled Libya. Italy invaded Libya and battled the Ottomans on the land. Italy would end up emerging victorious, and the Treaty of Luciane was signed in 1912, which granted Italy complete sovereignty over Libya. Italian rule did have many horrible effects on the people living within it. Thousands were killed by the regime that took over this country, and occupation also brought a lot of change to the lifestyle of Libyans, because some were now used as forced labor, and many were sent to back the Italian army. But one of the very few benefits of this colonial period was the introduction of true Italian culture into Libya. The cuisine in this region, the culture, the art, and different styles of clothing are definitely descendants of Italian rule, but who's to say if that makes any of it worth it at all. Omar al-Mukhtar is seen throughout Libya as a folk legend and a national hero. From 1911 until 1931, he led many successful resistances against the Italians and fought colonial rule as much as possible. He did this until his death at the age of 73 when he was ordered to be hanged by the Italian government. This would roll right into World War II, where Libya was one of the main battlegrounds between the Italians and the Allied powers in the North African front. By 1943, the Italians suffered defeat because the Allies attacked many of the colonies that Africa had across this region. And it is clear to most historians here that the Italian offensive and defensive efforts were entirely weakened after Winston Churchill referred to Italy as the soft underbelly of Europe because of how many battles it lost and how easily the Americans were able to win. A little history joke for you there. <clears throat> In the post-war period, Libya had its administration split up between Britain and France. It faced many struggles in development and economic stability. Independence would eventually roll in in the year 1951, and the first leader was King Idris of Libya. Oil was discovered in 1959 in huge amounts, and this caused a lot of change because it made some people very financially rich, but it also brought more corruption. The political system saw the king and other people at the top of the government work to keep themselves the richest and most powerful in the nation off the oil wealth while not really giving back to the community. The corruption became very clear to some people, and tensions started to rise. That is when we see the introduction of definitively the most famous Libyan in history, Muammar Gaddafi. He was a socialist colonel who overthrew the king in 1969 in a military coup to take power. He would rule the country from 1969 to 2011. He would bring many possible reforms, such as education and healthcare. He also saw the creation of the greatest man-made river in history, which is literally named the Great Man-Made River. And it is the reason that Libya and all of its cities got access to fresh water. 
He expanded human development and infrastructure, and under Gaddafi, Libya had one of the best healthcare systems in North Africa. Gas was also extremely affordable for its citizens, and he wanted to create a United States of Africa. And here is a very controversial thing he wanted that you have to remember as we get throughout his history. He wanted the African dinar to become a global currency because he wanted it backed by gold and wanted it to expand. Remember that Gaddafi specifically wants this. His regime did end up committing a lot of horrible atrocities despite the things he brought to the nation. He ordered the expelling of every Jew from his nation as he felt they were infidels in his land. He tried to back Palestine against Israel because, again, he did not stand with the Jewish community and is a descendant of Arab people, Arab Muslims, who believe that this region does not quite belong to the Jews, which is to each their own. And Gaddafi was constantly accused from this point on of trying to support rebel terrorist groups across the Middle East. And from 1977 until 2011, Libya became the Libyan Arab Republic to the great socialist people's Libyan Arab Jamaharaya, try and say that three times fast, done by Gaddafi. During this time, this was when that plain green flag was flown, and it was the only country in the world to ever have a designless flag as their nation's flag. Gaddafi oversaw Libya in the Toyota War, which was also known as the Libyan-Chadian War of 1978 to 1870. It was fought between Chad and Libya that broke out over border issues between northern Chad and Libya. Gaddafi wanted to take over this northern part of Chad as he felt ethnically it made more sense for it to be a part of Libya, and Chad of course did not agree with this. Chad was supported in the war by the French, and the main way the French were supporting them was with air support, but most importantly with the import of thousands of Toyota pickup trucks, hence the name the Toyota War. The Chadians end up using these pickup trucks to mount anti-air missiles and massive machine guns on top of the back. Then, the Chadians would use the superior mobility of these Toyota pickup trucks to kill thousands of Libyan soldiers and destroy hundreds of tanks. This conflict was brutal, and this new style of fighting was new to the region, but the way the Toyota pickup trucks bounced off the sand and moved very quick made them incredible for fighting. And for a long period of this war, Chad and France were looking good in the beginning, but Libya did end up getting the other hand for the later half of the war and almost ending it. But by the end, Chad and France were able to win the war, thus maintaining the Chadian borders we see today. Relations with the West got even worse during the Gulf of Sidra incident, which happened during this war. It happened when U.S. planes were fired upon by two Libyan aircrafts, which were subsequently shot down by these U.S. forces. Things got even worse when, under Gaddafi's rule, there was a Libyan organized terrorist attack on the Americans in Germany, which is known as the West Berlin Diskothi bombing of 1986. Now, it is not known if the Libyan government backed this because they publicly denounced this terrorist act and said that they would help the U.S. and whoever was involved find the perpetrators, but they very well could be lying and could have been the ones who did it. Who's to say? Then we're going to roll to 2009, where Gaddafi was still in power, and he called for Switzerland to be abolished. He stated that he wanted Switzerland abolished because he saw it as a corrupt mafia state that doesn't really exist, and he suggested that the Italian region be given to Italy, the French region be given to France, and the German region be given to Germany, and all the other territories would be their own independent thing. Gaddafi came up with this interesting suggestion because one of his children had been arrested in Switzerland for allegedly assaulting servants in a Swiss suite. Again, say that three times fast. 
His children were released, but Gaddafi took many actions against Switzerland. He banned most flights from Libya to Switzerland, and he pulled out $5 billion Libyan dollars from Swiss banks. And he declared Switzerland an infidel state, thus declaring jihad upon it in the 21st century. But this wouldn't last, as Gaddafi's rule wouldn't last much longer either. And after this, Libyan relations with Switzerland would begin to normalize. Speaking of that, the Arab Spring broke out in 2011, spread across the Maghreb region and much of the Middle East. It saw Arabic people stand up to their governments that they thought were outdated and were abusive. Libyan citizens, Libyan citizens joined in on this. They began to challenge the rule of Gaddafi because he had ruled the country unchallenged for 40 years and gave brutal suppression. He did this based on his book, The Green Book, which is a statement of his beliefs, and one of those beliefs is that he doesn't see the most democratic thing for there to be. One of the things he says is that democracy shouldn't be a bunch of people picking their government and a bunch of people to make decisions for them. It should be one strong single ruler who acts on the best interests of his people, which is an interesting take, but who knows? Of course, this isn't seen as true democracy by most of the world, and because of this, many people stood up to his rule. A very anti-government sentiment formed within the people of Libya, and there was widespread protest. Thousands upon thousands of strong crowds started to pop up in Tripoli and other major regions of the country. A common saying being used was, hey, hey, Gaddafi, hey, how many Libyans have you killed today? The reason this was said was because the brutal suppression under Gaddafi's regime did literally have people killed, and the people were sick of it. These widespread protests led to the first Libyan civil war, which happened in 2011. NATO backed the rebels against Gaddafi by giving them weapons and air support. NATO sought to, quote, protect civilians, and so they also created a no-fly zone over Libya, striking down any planes that took off in the area. In October of 2011, Gaddafi was captured and executed in a brutal way. He was made an example out of, and it showed the Libyan people that no man was above the law, not even Gaddafi. The war killed thousands of Libyans, and by the end of it, the militant group Ansar al-Sharia rose in popularity and power. Once in power, they actually staged the 2012 Benghazi attack, which was a terrorist attack on an American facility that killed the American ambassador, Jai Christopher Stevens. This was reacted to with fury by the U.S. as sanctions were placed on the region, and the U.S. encouraged other powers to do the same. It was one of those things where the official government was not the al-Sharia, so the official government didn't want to have to suffer for this, and the U.S. could accept that, so relations were okay again, but it was still very tense. In the post-war period, the National Transitional Council assumed control of the country and initiated a transitional process, aiming to establish democratic governance and institutions. However, the post-conflict period was marked by instability, power struggles, and the presence of various armed groups that were very much involved in different conflicts. The country faced significant challenges with trying to rebuild its institutions as well as maintaining security of the state. And anything regarding political and regional divisions was just chaos as different sides all either supported the al-Sharia or didn't or wanted to form their own groups, and it was just very tough. And because of this and the war that happened before, there was a lot of displacement of Libyan people. Thousands upon thousands moved out because they didn't feel it was safe to live there anymore. And the conflict also contributed to a migration crisis as Libya had been a major transit point for migrants from sub-Saharan Africa seeking to reach Europe, and because of the fact that there was chaos and war, it led to a lot of human trafficking being okay and not fought against in this region. All these tensions and all these struggles that I just mentioned led to the outbreak of the second Libyan civil war, which broke out in 2014. The second civil war was sparked by political divisions and power struggles following the first civil war. 
The conflict primarily involves two major factions, the internationally recognized Government of National Accord, the GNA, based in Tripoli, and the rival Libyan National Army, which is led by General Khalifa Haftar, based in the eastern part of the country. The country is fueled by competition for political control, access to the oil, resources, and regional-slash-tribal tensions that have grown in the region. Foreign powers are somewhat involved in this, as there's different backing and sometimes trade given to each side. So, each side also hates the idea of whoever isn't helping them being involved in their country. The war was bloody for six years, but, but after 2020 and in the early part of 2021, negotiations were made to have a ceasefire, a very, very tense and very incomplete ceasefire, but still a ceasefire. So currently, there is not actually any fighting in Libya that is major as the ceasefire has been respected. But tensions are still extremely high, and it seems that Libya is actually kind of moving away from stability, as if you look at its different ratings, especially on the website I use, the Freedom House scale, it has been graded a 1 out of 40 for its political freedoms, as it is a very corrupt system, people being elected fair is not common, and fighting usually ensues anytime there is a major election. So... Things are very, very tense right now in Libya, and with that, that gets us to the present, where Libya currently ranks as high on the Human Development Index and has the sixth highest human development ranking of any country on the African continent. The country is also the fourth largest nation in all of Africa, but the country has a very unique culture that has mixed Italian, Mediterranean, and North African styles into its cuisine and culture. Despite this, it is still one of the hardest countries in the world to get into because of the extremely strict visa granting, which has happened because of the civil wars and people not wanting any more foreign influence coming in. That being the government, as the people here actually do quite love tourists. They love sharing things with them and sharing Libyan culture so that people see Libya is not just this war zone. And a few years back, international efforts to bring rival administrations together did succeed. However, the continued proliferation of weapons and autonomous militias, as well as the flourishing crime networks within the nation, have all contributed to the real lack of security and safety in this country, and more than a decade of violence has displaced hundreds of thousands of people, and the human rights conditions of the country have steadily declined. So that gets us to the end with Libya, and it's definitely in a tough place right now. It's kind of hard to hear such a long and deep story kind of end sad the way it is right now. But the thing we said in our last episode on Nicaragua, which was we talked about how the hope is that David or one of the dictators in this land kind of the best hope was that they fall out of power slash die so that new things can come in and yes this country in libya saw Gaddafi, who was a dictator despite his benefits die out and has caused an end to some level of restrictive rights actions being taken but there's definitely still a lot of struggle in the country so we'll see what happens with libya but they did depose the one iron fist ruler they had and speaking of Gaddafi, I think I forgot to mention is that there is a lot of theory that the reason the NATO forces backed the rebellion army against Gaddafi was for economic reasons, because of course, most of the nations within NATO, every nation within NATO actually is a capitalist society, and therefore economic interests are very important to them. And the idea of the African dinar being used as a global currency definitely did not suit or benefit the mostly European and American powers that are in NATO. So it is seen by some that Gaddafi may have been assassinated and the rebellion strengthened against him by foreign powers in order to keep the dinar less valuable and thus keep the gap of inequality between the nation of the nations of the African continent and 
NATO members slash EU members slash America wide so that there is always benefit for those members. So do with that what you will. You can look into it, but I definitely think there is a lot of validity to that statement. And with that, that gets us to the very end where I want to do what I always do, which is kind of to do a takeaway or a mindset. And with Libya, that is don't accept what you don't deserve. And I mean that in kind of the more don't take negative unless you deserve it sense. And the first layer is not the deep layer, which is kind of if something isn't, if someone or something isn't treating you well, aka slash not giving you what you deserve, either the attention or the care or the anything, then you do need to stand up to it. In this case with Libya, it was Gaddafi who had outdated systems of how to rule his nation and new powers and people came in who, who no longer wanted his all overseeing regime to be in power. With that, they stood up against him, and even though things are in chaos, they still at least are their own country trying to fight for what they believe, and not under the heel of one man. You could apply it to your life in the case that if you feel like you are not in a good relationship, or a good job, or a good standing with someone or something, they'll put up with it. Fight against, either fight to change it, or fight to get out of it, because nothing should restrict you, and nothing should keep you stuck in a place you don't want to be. And then the other side of that I see is if you are getting things you literally don't deserve, things you haven't earned then you probably shouldn't keep accepting them. And I say that with many things. Many of us give ourselves a lot of reward without the work, which is the benefits of a relationship without a relationship, which is you give yourself the joys of maybe sexual pleasure without finding a sexual partner. You use devices like porn and stuff. I think things like that are a kind of thing where, or let's say someone's treating you really, really well and you're treating behind their back. Stuff like that, you don't deserve those good things. I'm not saying you don't, deserve them in the long run, but you shouldn't be accepting them on conditions that aren't fair to the other party. So if you know you're being terrible to someone and they're just treating you great, you should wake up and accept that you don't deserve that person. And that's a hard, hard thing to accept, but in order to pursue being a better person and getting out of this lie and all that, a thing I preach heavily, which is ending how much you lie, you do need to just do the right thing. And that is 90% of the time going to be stop accepting things you don't deserve, even when the things are positive, if you know you don't deserve them. So that's my little hot take for the day. And yes, yeah, so that was Libya. That was a long history, but it was very fun. I like going deep on countries like this. Another one that because of how protected and how hard it is to get into, not a lot of people know a lot of things outside of just hearing Gaddafi's name. But, you know, we have to cover the conspiracies here. We like to cover a bunch of different things. So with that, that is the end. And I want to say thank you all so much for being here. My name is Reese Garlinski, this is Young History, and this was Libya. You have a good one.